Hi everyone, I'm going to be reading the passage for us today, which is 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, You can follow along in the handout if you like. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud that that they all passed through the sea, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them; their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The the people who sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Uh, We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything, in the, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for both the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, Why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. 
Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, a little over 14 years ago, a university graduate who'd been an active member of their Christian union and continued to be a regular attendee at his church walked into a strip club with a couple of friends. Some hours later, he was actually thrown out, asked to leave for engaging in inappropriate behaviour. And when later confronted about it, he admitted to it, he confirmed the story, but said he couldn't remember what had happened because he'd had too much to drink. Now, some of you may recognise our former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, Uh, In that story, at that time, the Shadow Foreign Affairs Minister. He'd been visiting New York as an observer for Australia at the United Nations. And the question I've got is, how did he end up at a strip club? What was he doing? How does a married man, a pillar of society, a member of the government, a self-confessed Christian, a CU grad, wind up drunk in a strip club? Because if someone like that could make such a colossal blunder, then I presume none of us are invulnerable. Uh, All of us could do something equally dishonourable to Jesus. How did it happen? It turns out that this isn't exactly a new problem. See, the Corinthian Christians about 2,000 years ago were doing something very similar. Uh, In Corinth, like much of the ancient world, pagan temples were a really big part of society. Uh, The closest thing I can think of to a pagan temple today is probably something like a leagues club in New South Wales. Uh, Has anyone ever been to a leagues club in New South Wales? I have. Yeah, they're kind of cool. They're they're massive structures and uh, they're all sort of... Theoretically based around rugby league clubs, but actually they're all based around pokey machines. So right at the heart of it, you've got all these pokey machines, uh, hundreds of them, and they kind of fund the whole operation. That's where people go to worship. They put their little contribution to the god in, and they pull the little lever, and it goes round and round and round, and they hope that it will bring them good fortune. But actually around the whole pokey thing, there's all sorts of other stuff. So there's usually a really nice restaurant, at least one restaurant, Uh, often more. There's a big bar. There's all sorts of rooms that you can hire out uh, for parties and things like that. And that is pretty much what pagan temples looked like back then. The worshippers would come and offer animals to the god, to Jupiter or Diana or Serapis or whoever, in the hope that the god would bless them. But around the main room with the altar and that kind of thing, you had all these other rooms where you could go and have a party because there's lots of animals being sacrificed in this temple and what are you going to do with it? You're not just going to throw them out. You can use them for meat. So you cook them up, you feed them to your guests and uh, you can enjoy having a big meal with your friends and family. Often along with that, you're involved in sexual activity with either the other guests or the temple slaves who work as prostitutes. Some of the temples had thousands of slaves. And isn't that just how you show your friends a good time? That's the way of thinking back then. I presume that's what um, 
Cole Allen, the editor of the New York Post, was thinking when he took Kevin Rudd and uh, another Labour MP, Warren Snowden, to a strip club in New York. He's just being hospitable. This is what you do with friends. You show them a good time. But how do you wind up in that kind of situation as a Christian? Well, it turns out it's pretty easy. Certainly back in Corinth. If all your friends go to the temple for their birthday parties, for their celebrations, if that's where the business deals get done, then that's a major part of everyday life. If you don't join in, you're going to be a social outcast. And besides, if you're a Christian, well, you kind of know that idols are nothing, don't you? They're just wood or stone or or metal. They're not actually gods. There's only one god. And so if your friends want to invite you along and they want to do this sacrifice and want you to go mumbo-jumbo, mumbo-jumbo, well, what's the big deal? It's not really a god. What's the problem? If my family wants me to go and burn joss sticks to the ancestors, why not? Keeps everyone happy, keeps the family in harmony. And besides, it's not like the ancestors are actually going to do anything anyway. I mean, what's the problem? If my mates or the editor of a big newspaper or diplomats at the UN invite me along to a strip club, what's the problem? I'm I'm not there for the girls. I'm just there for the networking. What's the problem? I don't worship sex. They might, but I'm okay. Paul says, well, I wonder... I suppose you could think about idols that way. Certainly it's true that idols are nothing. You could say that it doesn't matter then if you partake in their ceremonies. But actually there's another way of thinking about it, isn't there? That if idols are nothing, then I must not partake in their ceremonies. Because to worship something that's a nothing, as though it's the creator of the universe, well, that's not good. But many of the Corinthians seem to be in the first camp. They see the people in their society going along to these temples. They see it as an important thing for them to be involved in. Maybe they even think there are evangelistic opportunities there. And they see the other people, those in the camp who are saying, no, we can't go to that, as weak. And over the last couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been trying to get the first group to think differently, to stop just thinking about their rights, to stop thinking about themselves and to start thinking Christianly instead, to stop caring so much about themselves and to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength and mind and to love their neighbours as themselves. And that's kind of how chapter 10 plays out. From verses 1 to 22, he focuses on loving God. And from verses 23 to 30, he focuses on loving your neighbour. So he starts off talking about loving God. The philosopher George Santayana uh, famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And Paul, in verses 1 to 10, draws on Israel's past to warn the Corinthians, to warn us not to treat God lightly. So have a look at verse 1 there. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. 
They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Can you see the sort of parallels he's drawing between Israel and Christians? Israel, the people of God, experienced the same kind of things that we have. They were redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt, just like we've been redeemed by God from slavery to sin, death and the devil. God was with them in the form of a pillar of cloud, just like he's with us by his spirit. They all passed through the waters of the Red Sea. In a sense, they were baptised into Moses, just like we've been baptised into Christ Jesus. God gave them food and drink, manna in the desert, water from the rock, not just to nourish them physically, but to nourish them spiritually, to remind them that they could trust him to save them. It's just the same sort of thing that he does in the Lord's Supper, where he gives us bread and wine to nourish us spiritually, to remind us of what Christ has done by his death on the cross, that we can trust him. In fact, you could even say that Christ himself sustained Israel since he was there as the rock. Not literally a rock. I don't think Paul's saying that Jesus sort of uh, transubstantiated himself or something or turned into a rock there in the desert, but that God the Son was right there working with God the Father to provide for them. He sustained them. Israel had the same kinds of benefits as us. And yet, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And Paul makes the point that this is not just ancient history. Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. See, the Corinthians seem to think it's just fine to go along to pagan temples. After all, idols are nothing. Well, that's right. Idols are nothing, and yet they can still lead you to destruction, says Paul. That's what happened with Israel. After they were redeemed from Egypt, they actually got Aaron to make a golden calf for them. They threw a party. And what's the harm in that? You know, if we make a a golden calf and we say that that's God and we bow down to it and have a party... What's the problem? That's what everyone else does. But actually, Paul's making the point that it was utter disloyalty to God. It was spiritual adultery, and God was not pleased. He actually commanded the Levites to kill the idolaters, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Sometime after the golden calf episode, the men of Israel ended up engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry with the Moabite women. And again, what's the big problem? It's what everyone does. We have a hunger for food, so we eat food. We have a hunger for sex, so we have sex. That's a great way to get on with the people around you. What a wild party. But, says Paul, the Lord killed 23,000 of them in a single day. The Corinthians think that it's fine to test Christ's patience by going to idol temples. But after all, they say, that's where all the good food is. 
These are the restaurants. If we don't get to go to the idol temples, we're going to be stuck eating carrot sticks and hummus for the rest of our lives. This is not a life worth living. (laughs) Apologies to the lovers of carrot sticks and hummus. But, says Paul, Israel grumbled about food too. They grumbled in the desert. We're sick of these quails. We're sick of this manna. We want some decent food. And what did God do? He sent snakes to bite them. And again, many died. But you might say, oh, this is all too hard. This Christian life is too difficult. We're at odds with our own society. How are we going to get ahead if we are this scrupulous about how we behave and what we do? How can you move up in the world if you don't go to strip clubs with diplomats and with editors of newspapers? How can I be part of my group of friends if I don't join in the drinking and the gossip? This is, this is difficult. How can I get ahead at work if I don't toe the line on the latest thing to come down from management that runs against my Christian beliefs? It's easy to grumble and to think it's all too hard, which is what Israel did when they sent 12 spies into the promised land. They came back and they said, this place is fantastic, this is terrific, but it's too hard. It's too hard, we can't get in there. They failed to trust God. And so God sent his destroying angel to destroy them. You see, time and time again, God keeps killing Israelites who rebel against him. And that sounds super harsh to us, doesn't it? Isn't that unfair? But I think it actually sounds harsh because we don't actually believe the seriousness of sin. And we don't really believe the reality of hell. I mean, what exactly do you think is going to happen to you if you turn your back on God, if you walk away from him? Do you think you're going to survive if you give the finger to your creator and your redeemer? Do you think he's going to shrug his shoulders and say, that doesn't matter? No, he's going to destroy you. God is in the business of creating a new people for his new creation. And those who turn their back on him have no place in it. Just like the Israelites who rebelled against God had no place in the promised land. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, the Corinthians think they are standing firm. It's no problem to visit a pagan temple, to participate in idolatrous dinner parties, to engage in sexual immorality. They think it's a sign of how robust their consciences are, how free they are in Christ. But to Paul, it's a sign that they've completely lost the plot. It's not just Corinthians, is it? Uh, We all face similar temptations. Or if we don't now, we will at some point in our lives. It might be the temptation to get ahead in your job. It might be the temptation to prove that you're one of the boys, one of the girls. To be fun-loving and carefree. 
might be the temptation to be in with the in crowd, to network, to make connections. For others, it's going to be pressure to conform to the family religion, burning joss sticks to the ancestors or praying to Mary. There's pressure to accept the idea that sex is just a free-for-all, that if it feels good, you should just do it. And if you suggest anything else, you're an intolerant bigot, a little bit sick. You wouldn't want to be like that, would you? There's all sorts of pressures, and I suspect that over the next 10 or 20 years, it's going to get a lot worse rather than better for Christians. That will be hard. And so we need to have this thought out beforehand, before we find ourselves in the middle of temptation, under pressure, trying to figure it all out on the fly. We've got to think it through beforehand. There will be pressure to accept the gods of our age, to conform, to give in to pressure and temptation. But actually, we're not the first people to face that temptation. Neither were the Corinthians. As Paul says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And what's more, he says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure. Uh, I remember uh, about six or seven years ago now, uh, when my wife Shelley was pregnant with our daughter Emily, we went along to prenatal classes at uh, the hospital. And so they had a midwife there telling you about you know, what's involved in uh, pregnancy and giving birth and raising a child and that kind of thing. And I remember one of the things she said was that there's going to come a time when you've got your baby at home and they've been crying and it feels like they've been crying non-stop for months. You're chronically sleep-deprived. You're more exhausted than you ever believed possible. And you've finally got them to sleep. You sit down with a cup of tea on the couch and just as you get the cup to your lips, they're going to start again and you're going to snap you're going to lose the plot and you're going to be tempted to do something that you'll regret for the rest of your life. You're going to be tempted to pick up your baby and shake it until it stops crying. And she said, what do you do then? What do you do in that situation? Well, you run away. (laughs) You put the baby down in the cot, in the pram, and you walk out the front door and you go for a walk. Because you know what? The baby's going to survive without you for 15 minutes. It's not going to survive being shaken or thrown against a wall. Run away. (laughs) And that's the same advice Paul gives here when you face temptation. Run away. Leave. Doesn't sound particularly heroic or spiritual, but actually it's profoundly wise. Think about what happened with Joseph when Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him in Egypt. What did he do? He ran away. He fled. Like Paul says earlier in the book, flee sexual immorality. Here he says flee idolatry. It's late one night, you're tempted to look at porn on the web. What do you do? Do you try and tough it out? No. Just get up and go for a walk. Go outside. What are you going to do? Go and hang out with your family and chat with them. Someone's really getting on your nerves. You're tempted to blow up at them. What do you do? Leave. Walk away. You're invited to a strip club by a bunch of high flyers. What do you do? Easy. 
walk away. Don't go. It's not rocket science. Fleeing doesn't seem heroic. It's not particularly culturally acceptable. But it is surprisingly effective in avoiding temptation. God provides a way out from temptation, Paul says, so take it. My dear friends, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? He says, what are you doing at communion? You're sharing in Christ. You're participating in fellowship with him and his followers. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites came and sacrificed at the altar in the temple, what were they doing? They were participating in fellowship with the Lord. So what do you think you're doing, he says, when you're going to join dinner parties in a pagan temple? Aren't you doing the same thing? Aren't you sharing in fellowship with the worshippers of this God? Aren't you participating in the worship of him? But then you think, well, hang on a minute, Paul. You can't quite compare communion to an idol feast, can you? Because actually the Lord, Christ, they are real. Idols, they're actually nothing. They're just wood and stone and metal. You've actually missed the critical difference, Paul. Paul says, no, no, I haven't. You've missed the critical similarity. Verse 19, do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. I don't think he means that there's sort of a particular demon associated with each god, as though there's the Zeus demon and the Diana demon and the the Serapis demon, something like that. I don't think he means that demons possess the idols or they contaminate the food, as if the meat gets kind of demonically possessed and if you eat it, then it might get into you and you might have demons inside you or something. No, he says food sacrificed to idols is just food. The idols are just wood or stone or metal. He's perfectly fine with people eating this food that may have been sacrificed to idols at home, where it's not a question of loyalty. But going to the temple, participating in the sacrifices there, well, that is about loyalty. That is about Worshipping something that is not a God. And worshipping something that's not a God is just a straightforward rejection of the true and living God. It's exactly what demons want you to do, he's saying. You're participating in, in the very thing that demons are delighted that you're participating in. You can't do it, says Paul. You can't be going to communion one morning and then going to an idol feast the next. It doesn't work. You've got to serve somebody, to quote Bob Dylan, who's echoing Martin Luther, who's echoing Paul. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. 
And if you're serving idols, says Paul, you're not serving the Lord because the Lord is jealous. He demands loyalty. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Of course not. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. In verse 23, we see Paul commenting on the Corinthians' attitude that I have the right to do anything. Yes, he says, that's what you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Well, but not everything is constructive. He wants them and he wants us to stop thinking about how far we can push things before we've crossed the line. To stop thinking about how immoral and how idolatrous and how disloyal you can be to God without actually getting into trouble. Instead, he wants us to love God and to love our neighbours as well. Verse 24, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. By all means, says Paul, if you're not participating in the sacrifice, if you're, you're just at the local butchers, well, then just eat the meat and enjoy it. God made the animals, he made them tasty, and he made them for you to eat with thanksgiving. So give thanks for them. And eat them. Enjoy them. You don't need to run a background check on the meat to see where it's come from. You already know where it's come from. It's come from God. He made it. He made it delicious. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But then what if you're invited to a dinner party, he asks, at a non-Christian's house? And say they're a, a pagan or a Hindu or a Muslim. Well, the food has almost certainly been sacrificed to something that is not God. What should you do then? Well, says Paul, do the same thing. Just eat it without asking questions. It belongs to the true and living God. But verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Why? I mean, if the food's not contaminated, if there aren't demons in it, then it's not contaminated. If it belongs to God, it belongs to God, surely. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is not the meat. It's not about you. It's about the other people. It's what you're eating communicates to the others who are there. So if you're told this has been offered in sacrifice and you eat it, what impression do you give to the others who are present? I think the impression you give is that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not really that important to you. He's not really worth being loyal to him. And that's a really bad message to give to people who aren't Christian. We actually think that God is incredibly valuable, more valuable than anything else. We would never want to be disloyal to him. And if there are other Christians there, then you eating that meat, you may well be putting pressure on them to eat the meat as well. And that may be going against their conscience. And that is a terrible thing to do to a fellow Christian, to get them to ignore their conscience, to do something that they feel is wrong. As one of my friends says, you can be totally right and still totally suck. 
You can be so concerned about your own rights and freedom that you end up causing a fellow Christian to be disloyal to Jesus. That you can create a situation in which someone who's not a Christian concludes from your actions that Jesus is just not worth bothering with. And that's a terrible thing to do to other people. Paul's actually calling on us to radically reframe and rethink the whole way that we operate, the whole way we think about life. We instinctively feel that life revolves around us. And even for Christians, it's tempting to think that Jesus died for me, he paid for my sins, so that I can go on living my own self-centred life without getting in trouble. But actually, it's very different from that. I can't insist that I have the right to go to an idol temple if it suits me, or that I have the right to go to a strip club if it helps me network with colleagues, that I have the right to do whatever I like. Because Paul is showing us a very different way of life. That when it comes to knowing, that when we come to know Christ, he actually sets us free from the power of sin. He changes our whole orientation of life away from our natural self-centred sinfulness and towards him. Through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, our whole direction has been changed so that we no longer love ourselves more than anyone else, but we love God and love our neighbours. So, says Paul in verse 31, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us through Jesus from the worship of ourselves and the worship of things that are no gods at all. Father, please help us to love you with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength and to love our neighbours as ourselves. For Jesus' sake. Amen.